Hi, my name is Sahith, and this is the Other Side of the Truth podcast. The purpose of this show is to provide a platform for people who were previously incarcerated to share their side of the story, and to ultimately serve as a step towards humanizing this population. Join us as we hear the other side of the truth through the personalities, backgrounds, and struggles of our guests, presented through their stories. Thank you everyone for tuning into this episode of The Other Side of the Truth. We're joined today by Brian who will be walking us through his life. We can get right into it with the first question. Brian, could you just talk a bit about your early life, such as where you grew up, your home environment, your early education, and your early influences? Yeah, sure. Uh, my name's Brian. I'm from Florida. Uh, I was originally born in Tampa, Florida. Uh, my mom had gone to prison, and I was adopted by my grandparents, who brought me up to Tallahassee. Currently, I'm living in Tallahassee. Um, my home life was pretty average. Uh, it was kind of strict. You know, growing up with grandparents are from a different generation, so I wasn't really. Well, I didn't have. I didn't go without. Let's say. Um, when it comes to having food and having clothes and having nice things. I always had, I didn't really need, um, my later on in life, you know, around middle schools when, when things kind of took a turn for me. Gotcha. So generally speaking, what would you say your childhood was like? Could you talk a bit more about, uh, why you were adopted and that entire process with your grandparents? Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, I was adopted because my mom and I were living with another lady and her son and we got kicked out and my mom decided to try to go steal our stuff back and the lady knew that she was coming and told the police to pretty much stake her house out to wait and my mom got hit i think i was about eight and a half she left me home alone police came to the door of course and uh went from there Uh, i was in foster care for a couple months before my grandparents were able to get me out and after that it was it was a lot better. Yeah, I was still confused about the whole situation being so young. But but once I actually got adopted by my grandparents, they became my main my main parental figures. They're the ones that always gave me the the ability to do the ones that always encouraged me while, you know, my mom and my father were off to the sidelines somewhere, either in prison, jail or off just doing whatever they want ultimately so how old were you when you moved in with your grandparents i was eight and a half i was eight eight and a half somewhere around there i'm pretty certain i was about four or five months from being nine gotcha so did you have to move uh schools and stuff yeah um i ended up going to an elementary school that i made most of my friends that carried me through elementary school um when i was with my mom we were jumping around all the time i never really was able to make friends i wasn't able to have friends over because she was doing drugs or the men she was with or selling and doing drugs it just wasn't a good environment so you just you see so you live with your grandparents moving into mid, middle school and high school yep. so how was middle school and high school uh, middle school was where i started kind kind of I don't know a better word than disassociating. Uh, I stopped really focusing on grades. Uh, I kind of just started slacking off. I was trying to fit in with people that 
didn't necessarily want to fit in with me because I would have known them from elementary school. And they went to one group, the popular kids, and then I went to the, you know, skaters and stoners, goth kids, stuff like that. So it, it was a... Uh, and it was a weird time in middle school for me. I think a lot of a lot of people have weird times in middle school trying to figure out who they are and where they want to be. Yeah, definitely. Uh, me included. So you say you kind of fell in with uh, like the skaters, goth kids. Um, would you say they were your primary friend group moving into high school? Yeah, moving into high school, they were definitely my primary friend group. Um, I didn't end up going to the high school that most of the middle school, my middle school would have gone to just because of zoning differences. I was actually zoned for another school for high school that is in the hood, and my grandparents didn't really want me to go there. So I ended up going to an art school, which looking back on it, it was just everybody that I fit in with going there. You had all the skater kids and goth kids and the artsy kids going there you didn't really have much of the the stereotypical popular crowd running around in there so how was your overall high school experience would you say i i loved high school um if i could go back and change some of the things i did like i dropped out in 11th grade um which i regret now but it was actually because of my grandma's thought of my friends are dropping out so i'm going to drop out too so she kind of brought brought it to my attention to do it but i actually really really loved high school you know it was my teachers uh especially my english teachers they were the ones that made me want to be a teacher after high school but of course i ended up getting messed up you know farther down the road but i learned all kinds of stuff i you know juggling we had a juggling class so i can juggle proficiently like a clown at a circus you know math classes i was able to handle which i'm not usually big on math i had a lot of friends since it was a small school i pretty much knew everybody you know i got along with everybody you know so could you talk a bit more about what led to you dropping out yeah i had some uh i was starting to smoke weed about ninth grade regularly and my grandparents started catching on to that and they were finding my bongs and my pipes and my little stashes around the the whole entire house outside inside wherever and it kind of escalated from there and i started hanging out with people that looking back now probably weren't the best uh for me to hang out with like i probably wouldn't want my kids to hang out with them now you know it, it escalated from weed and you know doing stupid things like sneaking out to hang out with friends or you know having a beer to you know doing ecstasy at school yeah it, it was a uh it was definitely an experience for me. I, I, I don't know. It's uh, one of those things I try to look back now with fond memories. And sometimes the memories are there, and other times I cringe at it. Did you have any goals, aspirations for after high school? Yeah, I wanted to be a uh, high school English teacher. Um, my first teacher I ever had for, for uh, high school English was Rob, whom we call our teachers by first names. And just the reading and the way he set his class up and how everybody was just focused on his class and the stories and the writing. And him and the two other English teachers I had, you know, during that time, they really made me want to be a teacher, you know, to help people. And that's ultimately, now I look back on it, what my goal was, was to help people. So other than hanging out with your friends, what other activities, hobbies did you have in high school? And what else did you enjoy doing? 
I skateboarded a lot, um, just like everybody, you know, that age, I played a ton of video games, I still do, even though it's probably not the, uh, best life choice at this time. Yeah, we had a trampoline, we used to jump on a trampoline, uh, had a pool at one point, it was a really big above ground pool, but, you know, it, swimming is swimming at that point. Uh, we, we did a lot, I mean, just kind of nothing too exaggerated. Well, I can't speak today. No, nothing too too fancy or too wild, you know. We're kind of in, uh, where I lived was kind of out in the woods a little bit, so we didn't really have any bars to try to sneak into or anything. But you know, we played tons of video games. We hung out with each other. Went to the mall, watched movies. You know, just from what I would think would be a, a normal childhood. It wasn't until later on that we found our fun being. Um, you know, breaking into houses. You know, at that time, that or the beginning of high school at least wasn't a wasn't a big thing for hobbies to be stealing or selling drugs or anything. You mentioned that you dropped out in eleventh grade. So, what exactly were the was the immediate thought process into this decision? Well, um, when my grandma initially brought it to me, I was excited. Because my grandparents had told me, you know, until you're 18 and out of high school, you get no car, you're not going to be able to get a job, you know, pretty much like you're going to come home and focus on your grades. And once you're at the point to where you can have all this extra freedom, you can. But once once you brought the dropout concept to me, um, I was excited. I was like, wow, now I can get a job. I can do this. I can do that. But ultimately, what I ended up coming into is. I had nothing else to do. All my friends were in school. You know, once I hadn't dropped out yet, um, finding a job was virtually impossible. You know, in in retrospect, you know, I, I didn't think of anything like that. I just figured the the world is my oyster at that point. Achieve, accomplish anything. But uh, it, it took me a couple days to even get back to my grandmother about it. Um, cause I was, I wasn't sure about it, but eventually I did say, yeah, let's go ahead and do it. So I had finished out, you know, like two weeks or so, whatever it was, to get the paperwork done. And then from there I was out and they, and the, the sudden rush of freedom looking back now was not a good thing in my mind state or in, uh, how I, the things I was already doing. Was there a specific reason your grandma brought up the idea of dropping yeah. off? Like, did she want like extra help around the house or something? No, she figured that since I had other friends dropping out, that I would follow them anyway. Um, and my grades weren't very good. As I said, I was just kind of screwing off in class. Um, specifically, I remember my Spanish class. I had a 0.03%. And it was because I would go in stoned and just go to sleep on the table and not, not care about it. And I think that was probably one of the reasons why she brought it up. But her main argument was because, you know, my best friend at the time, Cage, he had just dropped out. And my other friend, uh, Larry, he was contemplating dropping out, which I, they both ended up doing. Wow, wow. So, so, like, the overall environment you lived in, would you say that it was like a rural environment, right? In yeah, Florida? we were... We were probably about uh, I don't know, 10 miles or so from a Walmart. I mean, we weren't crazy out in the woods, but we were far enough out to where we couldn't just walk to a convenience store or, you know, anything like that. We would have to go for a good distance before we got to any of that. 
immediately after dropping out, what was going through your head? What were your goals? What did you want to do with your life now that you know you had a bit more freedom since you didn't have to go to high school? Yeah, I, I wanted to go to college. That was a big thing. But by the time I dropped out, I was already heavy into drug use. Um, I wasn't doing heroin or smoking meth or anything like that, but I was smoking a lot of weed um, during times I probably shouldn't have, you know, going to school or when I had homework due. Uh, I was doing ecstasy. I was doing Xanax, um, mushrooms, LSD. I was doing a bunch of that kind of stuff. And it, it really, it, it was hard fighting with myself saying, you know, I want to be a professional. I want to go to school. But at the same time, I have these other chemical wants and those chemical wants ended up pushing me away from school and ultimately to burglaries and stuff because when it came down to it I was spending all the money I did have on on drugs and, and gas to get around um and I didn't my ambitions were failing ultimately it's that's what it comes down to I know you mentioned that when you were in ninth grade you smoked a lot of weed but was there a point where you started switching to, like, do you remember the point where you started switching to some stronger drugs? Yeah, I want to say it was about 10th grade. Um, let's see, the, after weed, it would have been, it would have been mushrooms was the next thing I tried after weed. And I, I don't think that had as, as heavy as an influence on it as, you know, the Xanax. The Xanax started about the same time, about the end of 10th grade. And that was introduced by uh, the friend I had at the time named Cage. And his granddad just didn't take him. So he'd go and take him and he'd sell him to me. So, yeah, pr probably about the end of 10th grade is where things really started to get bad. Um, I was going to school on Xanax. I was going to school with uh, ecstasy in my system, which, you know, looking back now, there's probably a lot of meth in it, too. Who knows how much actual ecstasy was there? So... I can't even say I've never done meth because I actually don't know. So, yeah, in, in 10th grade, especially early 11th grade, was when the, the, the criminal aspects of everything came into. Would you say that your desire to make more money quicker influenced your decision to drop out of high school? Yeah, um, I, I think that like a lot of people, like my little sister, she's 13, she's trying to grow up a lot quicker than what you know, everybody's telling her to. I know everybody's parents telling them, like, hey, don't grow up too fast. And that's ultimately what I was trying to do. You know, I saw, you know, being able to get a job is something easy because, like, well, I'm not in school anymore. I'm 17 at this point. You know, I should be able to find something. But I just kept striking out everywhere. And once it came down to, like, oh, wow, I need money for the gas. I need money for this. I want money for this. So I want this item. It, uh, and it started getting... It started getting to me, along with, like, mental issues, too, because all the people I used to hang out with were still in school, and I was just kind of alone during the day. Got it. Did your, were your grandparents aware of when you started switching to stronger drugs? No, they weren't aware. Um, if they were aware, I've never heard anything about it. Uh, I know they were very aware of me smoking. I, I can't really, I mean, I can look back on the time that where I was tripping acid at their house in the middle of the night, my grandma came in and started having a conversation with me. It didn't seem like she knew. So if they didn't know, they never told me. And if they didn't know, it sometimes it seemed a little too obvious not to know.
Okay, so at this point, you're 17 years old. You you want money, mm. and you want money to buy stuff. You want money to buy drugs. Yep. But when you don't have enough money, what do you start doing? Uh, I started with uh, car hopping first. Uh, me and a friend Larry would sneak out in the middle of the night and go through the neighborhoods that were close to us, go through their cars. Uh, you know, looking for pocket change, you know, it all adds up, looking for cigarettes, looking for really anything that we could ultimately sell. Um, and then at my point, I was doing it for money. And I think Larry was doing it for just because he was a klepto, because he didn't really have any drug issues. He didn't really smoke weed. He didn't really do any of that, but he wanted to steal stuff. So, you know, for me, it was a uh, monetary gain. And it started with uh, car hopping and stealing from Walmarts and Targets, you know, whatever we could steal to sell to our friends at school. When, how did it escalate? Uh, it, it was a gradual escalation. You know, I realized once people started understanding where their stuff was going in the middle of the night from their car, they got smarter even after going neighborhood to neighborhood. And, you know, people started either locking their car or leaving valuables out. And... I, I can't even think of the first house I would have burglarized, but it, it would have been for, it would have definitely been because, you know, the money just wasn't at car hopping anymore. You know, we sold headphones, stolen headphones from Walmart to everybody at the school. And there was only so much that we could get from that. So not necessarily uh, Larry or any of my other friends. I was pretty much uh, by myself when I went and robbed these houses because, I didn't really want to share any of the money. Uh, I wanted it to myself just because the more money I had to myself, the more drugs I also had to myself. Did you have a, a day job during this time? Um, I would tell my grandparents that I was going to go out and look for jobs or that I had this interview or another interview. And uh, I would ultimately just go out to the park and whatever drugs I had, I would do them there or I'd sleep off the bender I had beforehand. So would you say this is what happened mostly uh, like in the year following uh, dropping out of high school? Yeah, um, every morning or so. I I would say before dropping out of high school, we were pretty much just car hopping. Um, The the year leading up to it, I had all bad grades and their deeds were worse. I mean, there were some classes like juggling and English that I was actually doing very well in. I would have a advanced English class because I had done so well the previous two years in my 11th grade year um, that they put me into a a higher level English class, which that and the juggling class were pretty much the only things I was passing. And, you know, I was too preoccupied of, you know, doing drugs or thinking about doing drugs or stealing from someplace, someone, or, you know, it was was kind of a... uh, Let's see what we're a uh, clustered kind of foggy time because of the amount of drugs I was doing at that point. Did anyone from school, like a counselor or teacher, uh, did they try to approach you to help? And how did they react when they heard you were dropping out? Yeah, some of my teachers, um, I mentioned Rob, my first English teacher in I want to say it was the end of my 11th grade, right before I dropped out. He, somebody caught me smoking weed in the bathroom and went and told 
that teacher because he was in his class and he came out and talked to me about it. I was like, hey man, you know, you know it's illegal because you know it's illegal to smoke weed here. So if you are smoking weed, man, you gotta you gotta chill out. Don't bring it to school or else you're gonna go to jail. And yeah, I was like, yeah, you know, I'm Superman over here. I can't get hurt. I can't lose. Like, you know, there was a couple times I had people step in, but I never really took them seriously. Um, I don't. It was definitely a mental thing at that point. I just thought I was above everything else, above the law, above above knowledge, and and uh, just overall help. You know, I thought I could do everything. So moving forward a bit, back to you know a year after you dropped out of high school. Mm-hmm. So what led to you being arrested? Uh, leading up to it, uh, let's see. I mean, at this point, I was very heavy into Bintos, so Xanax, Klonopin, stuff like that. Uh, and it's very kind of choppy, some of the memories I have, because the, the days just kind of blur together. But at that point, me, my friend Cage, Larry... My girlfriend at the time and Cage's girlfriend at the time, we would pretty much just stay out all night. We would sleep in our vehicles, do drugs, uh, rob houses. And as time got closer, the more I got complacent on what I was doing. You know, I started out, you know, I'd do a Xanax before school and go to school. But at this point, I was doing them uh, while driving. I was doing them when I woke up before I went to sleep. You know, after I eat, I was taking these things because it just made me feel so good. Leading up to the actual arrest, um, I was with my girlfriend at the time and we pulled into a house and I didn't care about hiding who I was or what car I drove because I was on the Xanax at the time. And I uh, walked right into somebody's house and took their stuff and left. Ultimately, they told me it was a camera that caught me. But I later found out that it was uh, my friend at the time, Cage, that told on us because uh, there's no way a camera could have seen through my tinted windows to see her in my vehicle. So that uh, that kind of dampered my my social, and not dampered, it actually elevated my social anxiety because it's like, damn, this kid I thought was a best friend of mine just snitched me out and I'm going to prison. Was there a reason he snitched you out? Uh, there's a couple of theories that go around. I've never really gotten a straight answer, but from what my girlfriend told me, or my, my ex-girlfriend told me, was him and his girlfriend, which was underage at the time, he was 18 and she was 15 or, yeah, 14, 15, something like that, and they ended up getting caught having sex in the car or something like that, so to get out of the trouble, he told on me and a couple other associates of ours at the time. Wow, so so where exactly, so when and where were you arrested? Was it at your grandparents' house? Yeah, it was uh, about 7, 7.30 in the morning. Um, I had taken Xanax the night before to go to sleep. So, you know, going to sleep at 2 or 3 in the morning and getting woken up at 7 a.m., 7.30 by, you know, your granddad or granddad. I think it was even my mom or my granddad that came in because my mom was living there at the time too. Um, and said, hey, you know, there's an officer here to speak with you and I'm all dazed and confused from the drugs and I had stolen stuff all around me from the house that we had, I had broken into. So it's kind of a rough case at that point because they have the evidence sitting right there in front of me. My grandma kind of checked out and went and took a shower and my mom was there trying to help me 
good things situated so when I went to jail, they would have easier times, you know, get my phone and everything so they could turn it off and whatnot. And this happened the very next day. Uh, no, it wasn't actually the next day. Um, I had done it about a week. House I went to prison for, I did it about a week before I turned 18. So I committed when I was 17. They didn't get me until December 13th of 2012. So about a month and a half or so, I'd say afterwards. Um, so I, ultimately, as I said, I don't think it was a camera that caught us, even though that's their narrative, because if it was a camera, they would have been able to track me down a lot faster. So what was going through your head when these police appeared at your door? Not much. Um, and I said, with the Xanax in my system, I wasn't really thinking about anything. I do remember my mom telling me, you know, like, hey, don't, don't say anything. Don't say anything that might get you in trouble. And... You know, it, that at that point, I just kind of it didn't went in one year out the other. Um, I ended up admitting to what I did just because uh, the influence of the drugs and their pressure. I'd never been interrogated. I, mean, I was in interrogation for three hours, three and a half hours. You know, coming off of drugs with no water, nothing like that. Uh, it was a it was a stressful situation. I remember, but it was one of those things I thought I could still handle. I thought I knew what I was doing. So could you walk me through the these first few days after your arrest? How did they, um, like, where where did you live? Or where did they hold you? How was that experience like? Yeah, so our uh, first day, you know, going into interrogation and everything, once they got the information I gave to them, um, they sent me back. You know, they, they sat me there for a while, then came back in, they cuffed me took me into uh, the county jail, which wasn't too far away from the police station I was at. Uh, booked me in, gave me my jumpsuit and everything like that, and put me in a cell. And I remember sleeping for two or three days because it, I was so used to having other things fuel my lifestyle at that point. You know, it, I was incredibly anxious because I had been so calm when it came to using the Xanax that... I was kind of internally freaking out those first couple of days. Um, I remember my mom coming that first weekend to visit me and just bawling my eyes out because I knew what was going to happen. You know, I'd been talking to people in the pod at that point. I'd been there for a whole week, so going in my first weekend, and you know, I had there's two different sides. You know, you have the guys that are telling you like, "Oh, just because you're white, you know, you're going to be good. You're going to be fine." There was one guy that kept it real with me. He said, man, it doesn't matter what color you are. I've had that judge, and I have the exact same charges you had. He says, you're going to get prison time. So at that point, he said, you know, just just start preparing for it, man. Prepare for it. So I started preparing, and it was about three or four months later when I was convicted, just as the guy said. And he said, you know, you're going to be convicted of first degree on burglary, and then... Uh, you're also going to get five years prison, and you're going to get five years probation, and that's exactly what I got, too. Wait, so you mentioned your mom. So you were still in steady contact with her the entire time uh, you lived with your grandparents? Yes, yeah, somewhat. Um, my mom is a uh, clinically diagnosed sociopath, so she's kind of in and out of my life a lot of the time. She kind of mooches off my grandparents, so it really comes into whenever... She needs something. She'll come around. So at that point, she was living with them. Um, 
and she laughed at us. She's come back. She's actually living with them again. And she's 47 years old. So, you know, she's a, uh, yeah, I've kept contact with her. I, I don't really keep contact with her in a parental sense, though. What was, when you spoke to your grandparents, what was going through their heads during this entire process? Uh, well, they, they kind of cut me off for a while. Um, I had gotten arrested in Tampa because they sent me to live with my dad at one point. But uh, then it was a very short stay there because, as I said, I got arrested for almost the same stuff I went to prison for. But those charges ended up getting dropped. Um, so they cut me off for a while. I didn't hear from them until I got into prison and was settled. And I wrote them a letter saying, like, hey, you know, I'm sorry for, you know, stealing stuff from you guys and just treating guys like crap. You know, once my mind cleared and I was able to think about the things I had done, I was like, yeah, I, uh, I'm turning to my mother here, and I started making the change. I think they saw that, especially in the beginning, you know, when they were kind of talking to me about how I was doing, what my mindset was. Um, They they definitely helped me along with that once they came into the picture and started communicating with me again. I know you mentioned that the person you spoke to in the holding cell, he told you that you would definitely get prison time. Yep. So when a judge told you that, uh, the judge sentenced you to five years of prison, five years of probation. Um, was it a bit easier to swallow? What was going through your head when you heard that? Well, e- even though I prepared um, for a prison sentence, I was still under the impression that I would get, you know, get off on it. Because uh, as it's popular through the media and just overall misinformation, you know, people are still telling me, like, hey, man, you're a white guy from a good family. You're going to be fine. There's no need to worry. So I still had that in my mind that I was going to be, you know, totally fine. I was working on a drug defense saying, you know, I have a drug addiction and all that. I got accepted to two rehabs for it. And, uh, you know, I, I was feeling good leading up to my sentencing. But once I actually got to sentencing and I, I could tell that the judge didn't really care about what I was saying. Um, the people I burglarized, they were there. They were saying they wanted me to have the max, that I was a menace to society, and I, you know, that I mentally harmed them. Looking back on it now, I, I, if somebody broke into my house while I wasn't there and rifled through my things, I would feel pretty violated myself, especially having children of my own now. You know, they painted me as the worst person out there. It's just like, okay, these are my, this is my second time being arrested, my first time being convicted. You know, I, I figured I'd be getting off on it, but my, proba- or not my probation officer, my uh, public defender, you know, told me, oh, yeah, you know, you're good. You know, I, I think you'll get this. This lady left my uh, acceptance letters for the drug rehabs in her office, so she wasn't even able to present that to the judge on day of sentencing. Wow. Did you... Did you and your family consider a private attorney, or was it something that just wasn't feasible because of the cost? Yeah, when I got arrested in Tampa, they got me a private attorney, which is one reason I beat the charges. There just wasn't any evidence other than me having the property on me. Um, I ended up beating it. Uh, When it came down to the second time, they they just didn't want to shell it out. They said, you know, this is going to be a hard lesson for you you know and I, I felt kind of betrayed because i saw 
how much they did for my mom over the years, getting her lawyers and bailing her out and getting her houses and getting her cars. And uh, in, in county jail before prison, I definitely kind of felt betrayed about that. You were actually arrested uh, a prior time before this incident. Yeah, I was arrested in uh, Tampa, Florida in the middle of in the beginning of uh, 2012. I was getting to be too hard to handle. I was coming home with stolen stuff. I was pretty much bucking their system saying, you know, I don't, I don't care. Like, I'm almost 18. Like, you're not going to be able to control me soon anyway. And I'm not in school anymore. Um, so they said, you know what? Go live with your dad. So uh, I went down south again, stayed with my dad for a while, and ended up just doing the same thing there that I did here. It's just I had uh, more free reign in Tampa because nobody knew me. Uh, I could drive around and, you know, if something did happen, I get pulled over. I could just say, oh, I don't know where I'm at here kind of get away from it i ended up getting hit uh, about a couple weeks after no about three weeks after i got there i was called in for suspicious activity in a neighborhood and when i got pulled over uh they found all the stolen stuff in my car stolen guns open liquor bottles and the moment that that second cruiser pulled up that day i, I knew i was going to jail i actually took a picture of it i actually took a picture of the two police cruisers in my rearview mirror Wow. So, so this was your second time getting arrested, and your grandparents decided that, you know, it was kind of a lesson for you. Yep. yep. Um, did you agree with that, or did you, you know, like even if even if it was a lesson, did you want them to kind of help out with the private attorney? Yeah, I, I wanted them to help. Um, but looking back, I was very. What's the word? I was very. Uh, I wanted everything now. I wanted it my way. Very greedy. I wanted instant gratification. And I think a big thing that my grandparents were trying to try to do was since since my mom's a sociopath and it sometimes can be genetic, they were trying to see if there was a way to I guess look it to where I wasn't so me, me, me all the time like my mom is and I, I think it did kind of help because you know looking back now I'm, I'm glad they didn't try to bond me out because at that would give me a good lawyer that would try to get my bond down and get me out because honestly I probably would have ran you know with that mindset and everything um at the time I was very upset about it you know I was angry uh I didn't tell my mom like no I don't want them to come like they're not trying to help me you know, I don't want to see him. And, you know, looking back now, that was just very, uh, very self-centered. So now we're at the point where you're sentenced to five years in prison. What were the first few days, weeks like when they, when you were actually transferred to, you know, your permanent, uh, home, I guess you could say for the next few years? It, it took me a while to get to the, uh, prison I would spend most of my time at. Uh, I went through... The, uh, the the reception centers. Uh, I went to one in North Florida, and then they took me down to like Orlando area, so Central Florida, and I ended up going to this. Uh, they call it a juvenile prison, but it was only one part of the prison. It was anybody that was from like thirteen to nineteen years old, and I was eighteen at the time. Uh, very hostile. You have a whole bunch of hot-headed kids that are claiming to be gang members. 
uh, pretty much just beating each other throughout the day. Um, first couple days, I got jumped by a group of uh, gang members, and it was initiation for one of the members. And I remember he was a smaller dude than me, and he ended up uh, jumping me while I was in the bathroom in the middle of the night. And I turn around and start fighting this kid, and the other kids come in after me, and they pretty they jump on me. And I don't have a chance on five on one. So uh, that was the first few days, and from there we got pepper sprayed and we went to uh, confinement. And I spent two or three weeks in there, and you know, I was pretty much by myself most of the time, even though they would put other kids in there occasionally. Uh, I never waited out of orientation dorm because every time I got out. I would end up getting into a fight or something for one reason or another because like, people I was hanging around with or because I was a white kid. I was a small white kid, too. I was 120 pounds going in prison at that time. Oh, so how long were you at this juvenile prison? Uh, I was there until I turned 19. So I was there for, uh, so I got there in about April 2013, end of April 2013. So I was there for about six months. And out of those six months, I probably only spent, uh, three months in regular population. What was the next prison that you were transferred to? I went to a, a private prison afterwards, a CCA prison. And that was for anybody 19 to 25, which going from state prisons to a private prison is a world of difference. The food is better, um, not too much better, but it's better. Um, everybody's more relaxed because they know they're going to get more privileges if they're not hitting each other with locks and socks. Um, this is that, that's where I spent the majority of the rest of my time. I spent, uh, I want to say three and a half there and, uh, spent another year after that at a work release facility. So overall I did most of my time at one singular prison. Got it. So the second prison, the, the one that. Uh, you mentioned was a private prison. It was entirely 19 to 25-year-olds? Yeah, um, it would fall over. Sometimes you would have 18-year-olds. You sometimes have 17-year-olds. But when they were coming, they were coming from the state version of this prison, which uh, they called Gladiator Camp. Everybody's just fighting and gangbanging and, you know, doing whatever they want, ultimately. So whenever those kids would get in trouble at that prison, they would end up being shipped over to my prison because they were either a target of gangs or they were targeting other people, so they had to move them about it there. But yeah, it was generally anywhere from like 17 to 26, even though 26 was kind of rare to see. Uh, interesting. I didn't know prisons were still stratified by age after, you know, after people stopped being teenagers actually stop doing that now um from my understanding they'll just send them to a adult camp and then have a separate depending on the age range of course if they're 13 they're not going to put them around a bunch of grown men but if you're 18 you're going to be around everybody else uh, i see okay so first prison the juvenile prison that was your biggest adjustment period you would yeah. say right yeah for sure I, I was around people that uh were coming straight off the street. They had, you know, they'd been gang members for years. They're like 13, 14, 15 years old. Um, they, a lot of them were in prison because of their initiations. Uh, they're just, I had, some of them were in there for armed robbery at 13. Some of them, there was this one kid specifically, he was 17. He shot and killed three people in a car and he just had twin girls. 
Um, yeah, so I'm around, compared to more of the adults that I was around, they were a lot more violent than the adults and going off the, the juvenile aspect of it. They didn't care. You're, you're sitting in the wrong area, they'll attack you. You're doing the wrong thing, they'll attack you. You mess up and make everybody get punished, you're getting punished again by the inmates. Definitely a big adjustment. That's 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 really scary. So how did you feel moving into the next prison? You mentioned it was a lot more laid back and easier to live there. Yeah, it was more laid back. Um, from the time that I got arrested originally and went to county jail, uh, which I was around adults in the county jail, they told me, you know, when you go into these places, don't be acting friendly, don't be laughing and ha ha with everybody because those people aren't going to be having your best interest in mind. So once I got to my first prison, I kind of stone-faced everything. I kind of internalized everything. And it carried over to the second prison. Um, I, I still actually struggle with some of the stuff that I was then in regular life. Uh, like, I'm antisocial to a almost clinical point now. I don't really like going out and being around people. My anxiety and and just overall fight or flight comes in into effect sometimes. So and it was easier than the first prison, but it was still a difficult change. Um, I, I made more friends at this prison, more buddies and stuff. Actually, one of the people I met in that prison is actually a roommate of mine now in uh, civilian life. So, you know, it, it was a lot better. Um, still still kind of had to watch your back. You never knew who you would be uh, mad or how they would handle you saying certain things. So I just, I, I, can, I carried on what I did in my first prison. I just stuck to myself and so people, until people came to me. Did you make, like, really close friends in that second prison, or did you have a group that you were a part of? How did you, how did you eventually form relationships, would you say? Um, it, it was just a gradual... Um, Making. Of course, you know, you have your cellmates, and luckily my first cellmate at the second prison was somebody I could kind of relate to. Um, he ran with the same kind of people as I did when I was out. Uh, he was kind of interested in the same kind of things. Uh, even though I didn't really consider him a friend, he was somebody I got friendly with and kind of helped me acclimate better to the prison surrounding. Um Coming out of it all, I do still talk to three of the people that I made friends with in prison. Uh, eventually, I did have a little group. Um, you know, everybody was kind of like-minded. We all listened to the same kind of music for the most part, did the same kind of things, or did the same kind of drugs while we are out. So and it was almost like a bonding experience over uh, crappy circumstances. What was the day-to-day -day like uh, in prison? Uh, depending on the time, uh, when I first got there, I was working in the kitchen. So I would wake up at four in the morning, or no, no, two in the morning. I'd wake up at two in the morning, um, and I'd go work until two in the afternoon. And that would mean that I'd be making breakfast and lunch and serving breakfast and lunch with a group of anywhere from 18 to 24 other people. Um, I would help serve, I would do the dishes afterwards. And then we'd go back to our dorm, and you're so exhausted from just moving 12 hours all day with literally no break because they don't want you to have a break other than eat and then go back to work. 
Um, I would ultimately just go back to sleep, wake up for dinner, eat my dinner, go back to sleep. Or if a mail call came, I got mail, I'd read it, respond to it, and go back to sleep. Um, that, that was the first uh, three or four months. Um, that's all I did was read and uh, go work at the kitchen. I packed on a bunch of weight. I went from about 120 to 145, 150 pounds in, the, in that amount of time. Were there any memorable events, stories from the second prison that you're willing to share? Uh, not too much. Um, I only ended up getting in one fight when I was there. Uh, it was a smaller kid. He had just gotten into a gang. He was trying to prove himself. You know, it, a lot of the things that that second prison, uh, I have to associate with my success now because I found self-help books while I was there, which I never would have looked at prior to my incarceration, but I found this book called Slaying the Dragon, and at this point, finding this book, I'm in the uh, drug rehabilitation program they had there. It's called RDAP, and uh, I, I was just so tired of being mentally torn between trying to be a professional like my grandparents and having this gangster mentality that I had grown up with by, you know, watching, you know, gangster movies, gangster shows, and just wanting that kind of lifestyle that once I found this book, which I thought it was going to be a fantasy book, um, Slaying the Dragon, I didn't read the back or anything, I grabbed it, ended up being a self-help book, and uh, I picked it up, put it down, picked it up, put it down, just didn't really get into it. And one day, uh, we were in lockdown because of a fight or something that had gone on in the prison. And so all we could do was sit in our cells and read or exercise, write letters. So I, I finally picked this book up. I just didn't have anything else to read. And uh, the book was written by this, this felon. Um, I forget his name now, but it was also written in the late 80s, early 90s. And he talked about becoming a pilot and everything like that. And it definitely raised my spirits because I was under the impression, well, once I'm out of here, um, I'm either going to have to work really crappy jobs and make bad money, or I'm just going to go back to robbing, selling drugs. Like At my first prison, I was uh, making plans on how to counterfeit money, how to grow weed. I was picking up all this stuff from other inmates. So it, it wasn't until the second prison and that self-help book, especially until my mind started getting right. Sorry, what was this book called? Slaying the Dragon? Slaying the Dragon. Interesting. I'll check it out. So, uh, you also mentioned you were part of a rehab program here. How was that? It, it was good. Um, at first, I, I kind of pushed back on it. I didn't really want to do it. I also didn't want to go to confinement, which was one of the things that happened. If you said, I'm not doing this, they'll send you to confinement and just bring you back anyway. Um, I learned a lot, you know, at the time I thought it was just all kind of pointless, like not needed information, like stuff that's like, ah, oh, this doesn't really apply to me. But right, right around the time, I was a couple of months out from getting out of the drug program, I kind of started taking it serious because with all the fluff they had into it, you know, making us all line up and say the, uh, creed, which I didn't. I can't really remember that anymore, but once you started looking into it, like uh, this instant gratification, and I was able to start putting definition to stuff that I didn't know, um, that's when it started becoming becoming something that I felt like was helping me, even though I definitely don't think being in prison was the best option. 
it was uh, it, it was a good good scenario to put somebody like me into. It kind of helped me put words to things and how to manage things like anger or uh, or greed. You know, it definitely helped me there. Yeah, I'm glad it. Uh, I'm glad it definitely ended up helping. Like at the end of the day, because mm-hmm. I know there is a lot of things in prison that that don't go right. So yeah, that's good to hear. So so other than like you mentioned the positives of this rehab program, is there anything else you enjoyed in prison? Uh, any other programs or initiatives they had? Yeah, I ended up uh, doing culinary arts. Um, I can't say it was the best education because just like all the teachers in the prisons, they don't actually have to have education degrees to teach. So my culinary teacher was a retired uh Navy boat cook. So and he was he was awesome. He, he treated us like people instead of inmates. You know, of course there was times to where he couldn't call things in because somebody stole something or you know whatever the case is. But he always tried looking out for us. He taught me a lot. Um, that's ultimately what I did when I got out was I took the skills he gave me, started doing cooking jobs and dishwashing jobs. You know, because he told us, you know, I'm not teaching you how to be a chef. I'm teaching you a. Uh, a survival skill because this will help you once you're out what would you say the worst part of prison was uh the worst part um i, I would say just lack of human compassion to where you actually think it's real because you know there's so many people trying to manipulate inside of the prison system that you don't know if they're trying to be your friend or not um you know, until you get to that point where you can kind of say, like, yeah, this person's not trying to manipulate me in any way. Um, of course, not having any women there, that, that's another big thing for me. Nowadays, I have real, I have issues with uh, men my age because of prison. Like, I don't really like hanging around them just because of the way they act. I'd always kind of gravitated towards uh, women in general. In high school, I used to hang out with groups of uh, girls and stuff like that. So that was a big, uh, big change for me. Uh, that was probably one of the worst parts, along with the food. Um, I can't say I really missed TV. They had a TV there playing almost constantly. I didn't really care about it. Family guy or whatever. The biggest thing was not being able to control my own life, not being able to say, like, hey, I don't really want, you know, beans and rice tonight. I want a cheeseburger. Or I don't really want to hang out with my cellmate today. I'd rather go with x y or z and go do this the definitely the loss of freedom was the worst part yeah i think a lot of people agree that you know the loss of freedom the dehumanizing mm-hmm. definitely something that they don't miss exactly. so after this prison you were transferred to a work release facility you said could you explain kind of what that is yeah work release um as long as your custody level is low custody I, I think they even let medium custody in now but uh you go to another facility which this facility was right down the road from the prison i was at and you go from having absolutely no freedom whatsoever to pretty much being a regular person that just has to go back to the facility at night um i got there on a tuesday and by friday i had my first job ever and I was a uh, cook for this place called Kim's Barbecue. And that was my first, you know, real feel of what it was like to be on a kitchen line and having the tickets come in or having the servers bring back the tickets. And that first night, that first Friday night, a 
another guy that had come from another prison to the work release center was walking with me back to the facility at like 11 o'clock. We had ankle monitors on and I even commented to him like, this is really weird. I've been in prison at this point for three and a half years. And all of a sudden they're just like, yeah, you can walk home. You can walk back to the, um, your job, walk back to the facility, you know, do whatever, get a bicycle. And it was so, it was so wild because they make us seem like we're the most dangerous people in there. You know, just the burglars and the robbers and the drug dealers. They make us seem like we're some super villain. But then they're all saying, like, yeah, go ahead and go walk. You know, go do what you want. And uh, it would take 55% of our paycheck that was supposed to pay for, like, our quote-unquote rent and food and stuff like that. But... Even as the uh, person that ran that, he told us, he's like, do you really think I'm wearing these nice suits and driving these nice cars? He's like, this is supposed to be a non-profit, but it's not. They're, it's all for profit, just like the prison system. Um, but then that was where I started feeling a little bit better about after prison, because I was able to get a job. I was interacting with other people that understood where I was coming from, because this city was a... Uh, there's a prison city. There's two or three prisons there along with a work release center. So a lot of people in town worked at those prisons. So it was it was nice to get back out into society and have a second go at things, you know. And this was the this was the final year of your sentence. Yeah, final years. Uh, I got there in April of 2016, and then I would be out in April of 2017. Got it. So you mentioned that they took 55% of your paycheck. So how much was your pay like per hour taking this into account? Uh, in 2016, it would have been uh, 850 an hour as a uh, cook. And I was doing 40 hours, as many hours as I could possibly get. So I could get out of the, out of the uh, institution. I could eat barbecue, I could drink soda, I could hang out, you know, it didn't really... So I always tried staying out, so $8.50, $40 an hour, I wasn't making great uh, money, but it, the freedom was the thing that really got me. So just kind of looking back on your prison time, those five years, um, do, you think, do you think your time in prison kind of informed, guided your current life in any way? Oh yeah, um, I definitely don't want to go back. Um, every time I kind of start thinking, having off the wall thoughts, you know, I have to think back to that. And now having my uh, two kids, you know, I I think about that more now than I actually do going back to prison because I I don't want to lose that. You know, it's it's one thing losing my own freedom, but taking my freedom also takes my children's and my wife's now. So, you know, it's uh, and I I. I I, I I don't know. I, I guess it's one of those things that it definitely helped me. I'm glad it happened. I'm just upset about the fact that I get punished cons- consistently over and over for the rest of my life because of a mistake I made when I was 17, and uh, and because of drug use on top of that, along with trying to fit in and just make everybody like me. Ultimately, I know you mentioned in our emails that. The system is corrupt. They don't care about anything except for their money. So could you talk more about corruption in prison, inequity, and how they prioritize profits? Yeah, sure. Um, 
It's kind of a little backstory to it. Um, when I went in, I was raised by my grandparents, which obviously we mentioned. Uh, they they were Democrats uh, politically. So I had this political mindset of like, oh, if you're in prison, you probably did something wrong that you deserve to be in prison for. Um, you know, the people here are held down by the man. And it's because of that that they're in the situation that they're in. Once I got off drugs, my mind cleared up, and I started. I had a little radio that I'd listen to, and I started listening to talk shows and people bringing different kind of viewpoints that I had never really heard of or thought of. And um, there was one segment by this guy named Michael Savage. He was talking about the prison system and just how pointless it is that you, know, you take people that have drug drug addictions or they have mental mental issues and you're putting them into a prison system that doesn't help anything or anybody all that does is either escalate it or it just you know especially with the drug thing and drug thing kind of varies on person to person i mean i've known people to get out of prison and go right back to what they're doing selling and doing drugs and and up right back in prison and they're sitting there now um it's definitely a money grab because at the time that i was in there my grandma had sent me an article about the prison system and how much each inmate's worth. Every year, the inmate at that point in time was $18,500 or so. And recently, I actually looked it up uh, before we got on here. It's up to 19000 something now per year per inmate. But we get the worst clothes. Um, you get a pair of boxers that are two sizes too large for you. Tell five and ten people have worn them. Uh, you're not getting the best stuff. You're getting beans and rice and bread for food or you know, cheap cereal. So it's obvious that they're not really spending as much money as they're getting on the rehabilitation and the overall help of these people that are in there. Yeah, I definitely agree with all that. Do you by any chance remember the segment or like the where you heard that segment from? No, I, I don't remember his specific segment. Um, I know he's not even broadcasting. You're talking about the uh, Michael Savage reference? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I know he's not on the radio anymore. He has a podcast, but I don't really listen to him much because he's kind of gone uh, too religious for me. But when I first started listening to him, he didn't really bring religion in. It was much like politics and daily life and thought. So I had to kind of stop listening to him. But uh, I, I don't even know where to go find what segment it would have been. It's been too long to even remember what day it could have been. Oh, no worries. I was just curious. I'm good. Uh, so near the end of your prison sentence, like at the end of your work release, when you were living in the facility, how did it feel in the months, weeks, and uh, you know, eventually days leading up to your release? What was going through your head? Uh, about three months until my release, I started counting down. I had a little... Uh, Actually, I've been counting down the whole time, but there'd be times in prison that I wouldn't mark off my calendar for a month at a time. But once that three months came, and that was the uh, last three months, I started marking off every day. And then the last month came, and I was getting more excited. I knew I had money saved up from working, and I knew I had a place to go. And then, of course, I was moving in back with my grandparents until I was able to uh, get everything situated. And I, around that time, I also found out that the girl I was talking to at the time in the work release, or she worked at the restaurant I was working at the time, 
but uh, Sheena getting pregnant with my kid. So I, I, I was excited about that. I was having my first kid come along. And uh, I, I was ready to get out and, you know, do what I was supposed to have done years prior. I was 22 and uh, thinking about, wow, if I would have done this kind of stuff when I was 18, you know, fucked up and went and got a job and laid off the drugs, life would have been a lot better. So I was, I, I was elated. I was elated. That last week I had... Uh, you know, people wishing me well. I had the the uh, officers there. They were wish- wishing me well. You know, I actually got caught with a whole bunch of uh, uh, nicotine vape pens, which I wasn't supposed to have, and they let me get away with that. They let me get away with a lot of stuff because I uh, I minded my P's and Q's and did what I was supposed to, and they knew I was so close. And that, that also gave me hope, too, because they know that, you know, I, I was a... Uh, a criminal and but they're still treating you with some kind of dignity and respect so immediately after your release what did you do what was your what were your goals your immediate goals um did you meet with your grandparents your mom how'd that go yeah my grandparents were actually the ones that uh drove down to pick me up. They came from Tallahassee and they came to a little city called Lake City to pick me up. And uh, they took me up to eat along with, uh, at that time, her name was Molly. She was the girl I got pregnant and we went out with her grandparents and had lunch. And I, I'm still kind of anxious because I'm not really used to that kind of environment. It just felt, it felt alien to me. Um, when it comes to getting back to town and everything like that, I already had a job lined up with a uh, sports bar uh, that I contacted prior to getting out of the work release center and kind of told them, like, hey, you know, I'm in a work release center. I'll be out this day. I'm currently working for one of your uh, one of your restaurants but in this city. And he said, yeah, man, just come on in when you're out. Come in, fill out an application, and I'll be working that same week. And he definitely did, so... Um, I was driving an old minivan to begin with that my grandparents still had, so I was able to, you know, get around even though the the vehicle was kind of a beater at that point. You know, I had the uh, the ambition to actually push hard, unlike what I did before. That amount of time had gotten my my mind situated to know what I want, to be able to make the goals that I had. You know, I was planning on going to college, which I'm currently in now, but I tried two previous times after my release to go through. You know, the ups and downs of life kind of halted that and everything. How did you find getting back into society? Were there any culture shocks since, you know, you're kind of uh, like four years displaced? Oh, yeah. There was uh, coming back to the city. I mean, not even cultural wise, but the whole city had changed. Um, different buildings were up. There were parks that were there that weren't there when I went in. Uh, new restaurants, um, well, especially on the technology front, you know, following the news and reading magazines while I was in, things like Google Glasses blew my mind. Um, smartwatches blew my mind because it just wasn't something that was out when I was. Um, culturally, since I've been out, I've really just stuck to myself other than small groups of people that I know. I kind of messed off for a while after release, uh, messing around with some cocaine i was drinking at bars and at some point in time i just kind of i saw myself falling back into that same 
that same uh, repeat of what I had done before, you know, doing drugs, drinking alcohol, you know, doing stupid. I, I'd go to a bar with my buddies and drink four and five pints of beer and then do some cocaine and hop on our motorcycles and drive away, which, you know, that wasn't that long ago. That was two years, two and a half, three years ago that I was doing that, you know. So I, with all the freedom that I got, it was, uh, it was shock because... Shock to me, not not culturally, but just shock as in, like, wow, it's that easy to fall back into these kind of things. And then the people I was hanging out with were some of the same people I was hanging out with before I went to prison. So I had to kind of step back and be like, whoa, these people are doing the exact same thing that I was doing. Like, I need to fall back. Like, even if, like, I don't see anything, any problem with having fun, like, I not anymore, but I, I probably won't go to a bar anymore unless my wife's there. We play pool or something. You know I mean, I'm just not big on the social gatherings. But when it comes to having fun, like I'll still do mushrooms occasionally. You know, I do it as a spiritual thing now instead of just trying to get high. But I have my medical marijuana card, so I you know I smoke my weed. You know, but I, I do it in a way where I'm not going to school um, stoned. I'm not going to work stoned. You know, I'm not. I'm actually handling real life before any fun things come. Yep, I think that's great. Everything in moderation, for sure. Exactly. How did you, like, when did you realize you were kind of falling back in your old ways? And how did you get out of that? Like, did you just cut contact with these friends? Or did you, did you just, like, stop showing up to the bar with them? How, how did that go? Well, looking back on a couple of different uh, instances, especially, when we've gone to this pool hall, and I bought cocaine from one of the dudes I used to run with. I was running with on this night. It was probably a group of five or six of us. I was on my motorcycle. And we just kept buying pictures of beer. And I was on my fifth or sixth or seventh, somewhere around there. And I knew I was, I was wrecked. I was stumbling around. I couldn't focus on a pool ball to hit it. So I went in the bathroom. I did my cocaine. I was hyped up and... We decided to leave and go to one of the other guy's houses because it was a birthday party of some sort. And at this point, I'm also on probation. So I'm definitely making some some questionable choices at this point, even after everything I'd gone through. And it's, it's late. I want to say it's probably 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock at night. And I hop on my bike and I had a 600cc motorcycle. And I maxed it out going down the road about 170, 175 miles an hour, just blitzed off my mind. And at one point, I remember, I don't know if I hit something or if my wheel got turned the wrong way. But I, got the, I got the wobbles really, really bad, and I almost went down at 160 or so. And at that point, I kind of had to step back and be like, whoa, something's not right. And we get to the guy's house, and obviously there's cocaine floating around, there's alcohol floating around, and uh, a blunt gets flat fired up, and I'm on probation. I hadn't smoked in many, many years at this point. I took one hit off this blunt, and I, I was wrecked. I ended up throwing up everywhere from the combination of alcohol and everything else, and crashed at that guy's house for a little while. And then that night, I was like, yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna have to slow down. But what, what really... Looking back, what really attributed to me actually getting my stuff right was I met my wife. Um, my wife and I have been married almost a year now. Um, I met her about three years ago. 
and she was pregnant with uh, another guy's kid, and I ended up stepping in as the father figure since she was his biological father was pretty much me in high school, just not caring, sleeping in cars, drinking beer, mooching off of people. So ever since then, you know, it's kind of slowed down because I view that my time is more worthwhile spending it with my family and doing things I actually enjoy doing instead of going out and just getting wrecked and ultimately having the the chance of dying. That's great to hear your your children and your wife seem like a really positive influence. Oh, definitely. What, did you find any programs that you enrolled in? Programs that might have helped you after release? Yeah, I, I applied for uh, Workforce Plus. It's supposed to help anybody, not necessarily just felons, but anybody find a job. Um, you know, so I, I didn't really want to make $9 an hour cooking hot wings, so I figured this would be a way to get me into something else. But all they wanted to do was push me into Burger King or McDonald's and, you know, everything else like that all fast food and stuff i definitely didn't want to be in which i'll say uh to me is another way of corruption because you know people talk about oh yeah get a job go to school you know da, da, da. half these people that go to these workforce places have no skills and they want to put them in the dead-end jobs and not actually help them that was my biggest not that, that, that was my biggest uh issue with it was you want to put me into a fast food environment that paid me less than I'm making now and it's not going to teach me anything like I'm going to be putting fries down just like I'm putting fries down now they never really tried to like ask me like hey you know are you interested in uh construction are you interested in this or that they're just like all right cool we got a position for you at McDonald's you start tomorrow and it's like yeah nah, I'm good so how old are you at this point uh like currently or once I'm released like at, at this point in the story, when you joined the workforce plus, oh, how old were you? I've been almost 23. So it would have been long after my uh, release. I got released in uh, April 17. So this is probably August or so because my kid had been born in June. So it wasn't too long after he was born that I decided, you know, working this dead-end job at this restaurant that's really not going anywhere that I actually hate, I'm going to go see what these people can offer. And once I went and saw what they offered, it definitely wasn't for me. Got it. So, so what happened with your relationship with, um, with Molly and your first child? Yeah, Molly um, has mental issues that I didn't know of prior to starting a relationship with her um she was always on vivance which is like adderall and if she didn't have it she would just be in a really crappy mood um when i met her she was she was full of energy she wanted to work and get money and you know better her life but once i got out and i was pretty much supporting her obviously after she had the baby which i had no issue with but six months after um, the baby's born. We're looking at the end of December. She still hadn't put any initiative towards trying to help with anything, um, not helping with any kind of bills. She pretty much played on her phone and played PlayStation all the time. So, you know, we ended up getting in fights a lot. Um, I started trying to leave the house and not come home. Like at this point, I was working at another sports bar as a dishwasher. And I would stay late with the cooks and have a couple beers because like we just worked from 
five, four or five in the afternoon till two or three in the morning. I'm going to have a couple beers, you know, relax before I hop on my little uh, moped at the time and get back to my house. And I would get back and she'd still be awake and she would start accusing me that I was staying and having sex with the bartenders and stuff like that. Because ultimately, that's how she got pregnant was her and I were working at IHOP together and uh, I would stay late. She would stay late. And we made use of that time. So I, I think she was kind of uh, projecting almost um, onto the situation. Well, she even even with the child situation, I'm still not really certain if uh, that boy is mine or not because we didn't have a DNA test. I didn't think it was necessary, but looking back now, you know, it probably is. But I'm not really too worried about it currently. But she she ended up just accusing me all the time of cheating, and I would wake up in the middle of the night, her going through my phone, and never finding anything, but taking small things, like me talking to a female friend of mine, seeing how her family's doing, taking out of context, saying that I was trying to go hook up with her. And uh, it, it ultimately just drove us apart, because I pushed her away, because I didn't want to didn't wanna deal with that. She's, she has narcissism. Um, I, I believe she's a sociopath of some sort. That's one thing in my prison time. I delved into uh, psychology because that's when that's when my grandparents told me that my mom was a uh, clinically diagnosed sociopath. So and after I was out and I was constantly around Molly, I was able to see those signs. And the medication wasn't helping; it was making it worse. She would be taking uh, amphetamines during the day, and then be taking. Uh, you know, some kind of sleeping medicine at night to help her go to bed, but it still wouldn't work. She'd be up all night. Like, it just, it was very, uh, it's very uncomfortable, you know, being around that. It was just going from one hostile situation to another. Yeah, yeah. How did you meet your current wife? Uh, I actually met her online. Around the time that I met her was the time I was really getting tired of going to bars. I live in a college city, so a lot of the women that are here that would go to the bars and stuff, they're not my type and I'm not their type. You know, they're, they want to be out and around their friends and having a good time and going to bars and sporting events. And I'm more of a homebody to where I just want to have fun with a small group, you know, my family or a couple other people because I'm very introverted. So I met her online. I went and hung out with her one night after work. And she, of course, told me at that point, like, hey, I'm, I'm incredibly pregnant. So don't be shocked when you get here. But uh, from there, I talked to her, you know, on and off for several weeks. And I disappeared. I have my own, my own mental issues. Uh, I'm not a sociopath, thankfully. But I, I have something floating around up there that's not quite right. So I, I, I have my moments. It actually happened here recently. Um, I kind of just go into this, uh, I, I don't want to call it psychosis because that sounds bad, but psychosis-esque state to where I'm just kind of like blank. I don't really want to do anything except for be left alone, listen to music, and just be in my own space. Um, I eventually wrecked my motorcycle, and it was because it was raining. I wasn't high or anything, but uh, she saw my Snapchat story and reached out again. And from there, her and I just continuously talked and... Uh, I ended up getting engaged in twenty, the end of twenty eighteen. No, when the like middle or so of twenty nineteen, 
and uh, she got pregnant shortly afterwards with our daughter. So I have two kids that live with me. I have uh, my son, Grayson, and my daughter, Brindley. And they're both great. Of course, they scream a lot. But, uh, yeah, I met her online. And uh, I'm so thankful for online dating now because when I went in, online dating was still in its infancy. And you couldn't really uh, know who you were talking to at that point. Yeah, for sure. Congrats, man. Congrats. Yeah, I appreciate it. So have you committed to, like, a career path? What are you up to now? Yeah, I'm actually uh, fairly committed to try try my hand at either programming or cyber defense or cybersecurity. Um, it, it really depends on the company and stuff. You know, my record, it, it'll be a little harder for me to get into something like cybersecurity, but it, that's something that has real high interest of me. I've always been a computer person. So I figured get my feet wet with programming and kind of go from there. So I'm in my uh, second full semester of school. I've done three and completed them. I did a full spring semester. I did one class in my summer semester, and uh, I'm now in my fall semester. And I'm holding uh, three classes. My wife's also in school. She's going to be a nurse. So it's uh, our house is quite hectic all the time, you know. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty dead set on becoming a software engineer. Um, my probably unreachable goal, which I, I like to aim for it anyway, is to work with something like SpaceX, you know, develop technology to be able to go out in space, because I've always been real, real big on uh, space exploration and whatnot. But I just don't see the uh, where the money is becoming an astronomer or anything like that. Cool, cool. Yeah, I think um, space is definitely something I'm interested in as well. Mm. So how was it applying to, like, jobs, college, out of, um, after prison? Was it difficult with background checks? Well, with the, uh, the job side of it, when it comes to, like, restaurants, they don't really care as long as you're going to be there to work. Um, a lot of the times, unless you've been there with them and they know who you are, you're not just going to walk in and become a uh, manager right off the bat because they don't want you handling the money. They can't trust you. Finding uh, finding jobs is fairly easy, and I, I say that is you know I couldn't I couldn't go to Best Buy because I think I'm gonna steal a, a PlayStation or steal their money or something. But I, I could I have restaurant jobs all day, which is another point I'll make here is you know these companies they don't want me selling their PlayStations because they're afraid I'm gonna swindle somebody or steal something from them or you know harass somebody in some way. But I'm allowed to cook people's food where I have, you know, full control over, um, which to me is just mind-boggling that I'm, that we're allowed to do it. It's, I mean, I've worked with murderers in kitchens before. I'm like, wow, you guys don't think that's an issue? But uh, school-wise, I had, to, uh, I had to talk to my grandma about it because I was getting rejected because of the felonies to begin with. And it was because of the severity. Uh, I had first-degree felonies for the armed burglary, which sounds really bad. I, my charge is to step down from home invasion, from what I understand, um, which I didn't do. They left the door unlocked. I walked inside and stole some stuff, including a gun, so I got hit with the, the highest possible charge there is for it. Um, so that kind of put a damper on the school thing, but contacting my grandma, who used to be in the school system back in the day, she was able to call somebody she knew, and they were able to get a hold of the superintendent of the uh, college. 
And I had to sign contracts saying, you know, I won't do this or that. I won't harass people. I won't steal. And it's kind of like, man, if I was wanting to do that, I wouldn't be applying to school. I would just go do it. Well, yeah, which I think ultimately kind of gave him the, the hindsight. Like, yeah, I guess that's pretty true. So I've been two other times to college since then. I went to uh, the community college I'm at now first, and then I went to a trade school second for uh, mechanics. And neither of, those, neither of those times panned out. Um, I just kept working odd jobs, working at restaurants or doing like some kind of construction work. I did windows for a while, putting in windows and putting glass. Um, I ran my own business for a while, doing handyman work, painting and deck repair. Um, and I just got tired of the rat race. You know, one day, the, the last restaurant I worked for, I was sick three Fridays in a row. I had kids in daycare, so it, that's just something that happens. And I also have a weak immune system, so I get sick quite often. So they fired me for being uh, out three Fridays in a row, which, you know, it is what it is. But now I'm doing painting, um, and I quite enjoy it. I'm left alone. Nobody really bothers me. I go in, I know what I have to do, I get it done, and I get on out. But uh, when it comes to the, the misunderstanding of, you know, felons can't find jobs and you know, all that, I think it, it really depends on your at and also your charges. Nobody wants to hire a child diddler. Nobody wants to hire somebody that's raping women, you know. And, uh, but also, and, and, and also, when you look at it, like if you're in the middle of nowhere, Kentucky, it's going to be harder for you to find a job than in a, in a bigger city where there's more people that have felonies. So I, I would say for me, it was fairly easy. Now, I, I can't find things that I want. Like I can't easily go sell life insurance, which they make a good amount of money. You know, I can't go be a realtor. I can't work in most retail jobs. But uh I, I can't really say it was too difficult, other than having to jump through hoops and play games of uh, the school. So could you talk some more about um, some of the failures you would say you experienced along the way to uh, your current situation? Yeah, um, as I mentioned, uh, I did have another bout of, uh, I, I can't even say it's drug addiction, because I was never really addicted. I was doing it this time since I've been out. Um, I wasn't really addicted this time. I was doing it more to try to have fun and try to accumulate back into what I thought society was. Um, so yeah, you know, pitfalls like that, um, little things like wrecking my motorcycle set me back because at that point I didn't have a vehicle anymore to get to work. That was my primary mode of transportation at the time. Um, of course, with uh, Molly leaving, which she's the one that ended up leaving me because I was trying to fix things in the relationship, but uh, she ended up leaving, and uh, I ended up going down into a pretty big spiral of depression, uh, which I tried pulling myself out of. You know, I kind of coped with it. Um, I ended up going getting SSRIs, uh, pretty much Prozac, but it was a generic version, which worked for a while but then just kind of like zombified me after after the first few months so i then i had to get off of that um i was trying to figure out where i fit in i know i didn't want to do restaurant work for all my life uh then obviously you know getting on child support because of my first child uh then i kind of put put a stop to some things because it's like okay well now i'm gonna have to make more 
because if I don't make more, I'm not going to be able to pay my rent with the child support. So it, it was mostly small things. Um, some of the things were more drastic as in lifestyle choices, like doing the cocaine and just overall falling back into the same things, talking to the same people. You know, I, I wasn't kicking in doors. I learned my, list, my lesson from that. And I wasn't trying to steal from stores or, you know, rob people. But I, I, was, I was going back down that path because if and when I got hooked back on, you know, either cocaine or I fell back on the Xanax or whatever it was, I was ultimately going to go back down that path to stealing from people again. How do you kind of stay committed to your goals now? I know you mentioned your family was a big thing, but is there anything else you do, like mindfulness techniques? Uh, self-help techniques is there anything that really helps you yeah i actually uh i follow taoism which uh i don't know how many people know about taoism but it's chinese philosophy slash religion depending on how you follow it and it's uh it was, it's helped me spiritually in a way to where I, I was never really a god person i didn't i'm not big on christianity it just wasn't my thing it never really clicked but uh, reading the Tao Te Ching, you know, that, that kind of opened up things for me, you know, kind of going with the, the flow of things, stop worrying so much, stop stressing about past instances like my prison record or stop stressing about the future of where I'm going to go, what I'm going to do, how I'm going to make my money to support myself and my family. Um, it, it's helped me kind of bring everything to a moment. And that's one thing they talk about in Taoism the most is living the moment there because the future isn't granted to you and the past isn't going to change so kind of be in the moment and plan for the future but don't stress about it um like right now you know i'm doing good in school but i make it through some of the higher level programming classes no it's a lot of math stuff i'm not good at math but i try not to think that far i just try to go with it and make sure it's going to help me instead of hurt me um that's one thing with the drugs i say you know i can look back on time and see they damaged me i can look at what they're doing now and i can look into the future and plan for that future but that future doesn't look too good for me uh i have taken a lot of self-help stuff um from financing books how to do my finances and save my money and invest my money because that's just something I wasn't taught when I was uh, younger in school. Certain mindfulness, um, empathy. Uh, I feel like I was lacking a lot of empathy when I was younger. And I think that's, I, I kind of struggle with my mental health and what could actually be going on because of that. Um, because I actually had to read books and understand what empathy was before I actually had empathy which is something my mother doesn't have. She has a form of empathy, but doesn't have it. So I, I was worried about that kind of thing, but I, I never really stressed it too much. I, I ultimately came out of everything, the self-help and the stuff that really helped me was uh, just be kind. You know, uh, if it harms somebody, either mentally or physically, I, I try to avoid it. You know, if I think I'm going to... Uh, make somebody's day worse, I try to avoid whatever that is. You know, if I... If I'm in a rush and I'm kind of upset about traffic, I don't cut people off or anything like that because I know it's only going to make their day worse and their mental state worse. So I, I try to just uh, be mindful about other people's and their thoughts and step in their own shoes. To if I was going to do something stupid, let's say like kick a door in, 
how would I feel if I kicked the door in or somebody kicked my door in and my family was home at that point in time? I had to be devastated. I know my kids would be devastated, even though they're quite young still. I know they would be scared. So I, I try to step in with little things like that. Um, I, I try not to inconvenience anybody with uh, my wants or needs. You know, I try to just internalize and not necessarily cope, but uh, filter what I want to say or what I want to do before I even do anything. If I want to say, you know, I'm going to go out with this person tonight, I have to kind of stop and say, wait a minute, that person usually doesn't lead down a good path. So I'm going to step away from it. So a lot of that comes from the drug program in prison, you know, taking a stop and what what was the wording? Stop and uh, take a step back at what you're about to do or what you're currently doing. Is it going to benefit you or the people around you? So I, I've held on that for a long while because it, that's made me say, okay, well, if I quit this job now because I hate it, will it benefit me or my family? And the answer is ultimately no, so I stay. Uh, kind of like my job now. I'm making less than what I'd make at a restaurant being a painter. But the hours are good. The pay's fair. It's above minimum wage. And I get by on it. So at this point in time, I'm just kind of going with the flow. It was great to hear, and I think I really think you shared some wonderful tips, advice. Um, I know we didn't talk a lot about religion uh, and how it's you know been present in your life, but I want to ask: How did you find Taoism, uh, and when did you start practicing it? Uh, I actually same same situation as the self help book I originally found. Um, I found it in the prison library. Uh, I have it upstairs, or I have a copy of it upstairs, and the names debating me now but it, uh, it was a little more tree hungry than what i wanted um but she pointed out things in the books about or the book about how mindfulness and just stepping outside and clearing your mind and stop thinking about so much to quiet that inner voice and just to have deep breaths to feel the sun on your skin to feel the plants to to go know what's going on around you and uh, that was the biggest uh the biggest thing that hit me because before then at my first prison i tried doing the bible thing again you know i had people tell me like the moment you give your life to jesus you have this feeling of love and it, it, it just never clicked for me um even though my grandma was religious uh my mom tried to be religious the best she could it, it never stuck. Um, I started researching other religions, like j- just as a research thing. I looked into uh, Judaism. I looked into Catholicism. I looked into. Uh, I read the Quran or part of the Quran. I went into uh, like woodcraft stuff, so pagan religion, which I still have some of those books here too. And the only one that really seemed to fit was Taoism, because you know the very first part of that book it shows that there is no name for what they consider god which is the Tao. there is no no name for it there's no shape so nobody can know what it is or whom it is or how it operates it's it's too mysterious it's beyond our viewpoint and that's what got me there is because when it comes to christianity they say oh well god is this and he's that and he's this and he does this and it's like well how can you put a name and especially something like a gender on something that we don't 
even know. It's all speculation. Um, and from there, it just kind of snowballed. A lot of the uh, Dao De Ching is still kind of a mystery to me just because it's written like the Bible. It's all in... Uh, and you can take from it what you want and make a meaning of it from what you want a lot of the times. But uh, for, from the main understanding I have from it, it, it's been one of the, especially here recently after lockdowns and everything from COVID, it's kind of helped me get past some of the stuff, especially when it comes to politics and just the overall environment of what we have to live in. I was so stressed out about stuff going on in politics, which I never was a political person, but I, I had to dive back into the Dao De Ching because it, it said, hey, Stop worrying about all this stuff because what I got from it ultimately it's an illusion. What you're what you're dealing with is somebody else's issues and somebody's problem. The fact that I'm projecting myself into that problem is ultimately a me problem. I need to pull myself out of that and focus on me and be in my own mind space. Thank you for sharing that. That was really so interesting. Just to start wrapping up a bit, what would you say is some of the biggest advice you have to give to someone? who may be going through something similar as to what you went through? Uh, prior to prison, I would say, or prior to any incarceration, even if it's just you're arrested for possession or, you know, whatever the case may be, especially if it comes down to drugs, you got to ask for help before it gets to that point. Um, I had times, especially after my first arrest in Tampa, to where I was in a therapy of some sort. I was... You know, getting help that wasn't court-ordered, but could be court-ordered. So my lawyer said it would be a good thing to do, but I, I just bucked it. I didn't care what anybody else said. Um, it, didn't, it didn't dawn on me that I needed to take advice from other people until I started reading the self-help books. And I got farther into the self-help books. Um, really focus on yourself, uh, especially if you're as young as I was. There's no reason to be focusing on your friends like like I was. I tell the same thing to my sister. You're 13, 14 years old. These people that you know now, they you probably won't know most of them once you're my age. People go their separate ways. And I, I look back on it and say to myself, like, wow, if I wasn't so so heavy into making wanting wanting to make people like me. And doing the drugs to try, not necessarily to fit in, but to, to cope with the things I was feeling and the mental issues I'm sure I was dealing with back then also. If I would ask for help and actually meant it and went to somebody like even a teacher and said, oh, man, I'm having issues with, you know, drug addiction or I mean, even though it's something that's hard to admit, especially while you're in the, the thick of it, people are willing to help. Especially if you get a feel for like your teachers like I did and I knew which ones were actually there trying to help me along instead of saying, hey, you're smoking weed in the bathroom, you're going home, you're not allowed to come back. That man actually tried to give me good advice that I just didn't take. A lot of the stuff now um, that I, I follow in my day-to-day -day life come from my grandparents trying to teach me when I was a kid. You know, like, hey, instead of taking your dirty bowl after eating and just sitting in the sink, why don't you just wash it out and get it done with? You know, before, I didn't care. I'd toss in the sink, walk away, take my clothes off, throw them on the floor. I, I, I never took advice to make my own life easier. And I think that comes down to a big portion of people is they always think that they know better, which I, I think is built into us for the most part as humans. I see it in my little sister. I see the things that she's doing. And even though they're 
you know, she's not listening to uh, Plies or Two Chains or Gucci Mane, but she's listening to, uh, you know, the newer ones that are out now that are even worse, in my opinion, um, than they were when I was growing up. Ultimately, with, and this comes from self-help books too, what, what you feed your mind is what you become. So if you feed yourself that you're never going to get out of a cycle or you're held down upon by this or that or you know you have to be in this game because of this or do these drugs because of that you're just uh you're feeding your brain that material to believe it you know they they say that people that tell themselves the same thing over and over and over and over again they end up believing what they're telling themselves and i i see a lot i saw it a lot in prisons where people say oh yeah i'm just gonna get out and sell crack again and that that's just the end of it. It's like, well, if you keep telling yourself that, you're never going to expand past that. You know, it, it's a uh, it, it's a mental thing overall. I could say the same thing about you know just drugs in general. I think was what led me to prison. Um, don't take hold, and uh, you always know it. I mean, there were times where I'd be four and five milligrams deep into Klonopins knowing that I was growing up and I shouldn't be doing what I was doing, but I felt there was no way out. Uh, I felt like I wouldn't make it to 25, which I've made it past this October 5th. I'll be 27. So I had made it past the expectancy, but that's because I believed that I could and I fed myself positive material instead of listening to music about Robbing people and selling drugs, which is all bullshit to begin with. Because I know Gucci Mane, a multi-million dollar artist, isn't selling cocaine anymore. That man's doing it to make his money. And people get into these mindsets of, oh, he can do it, I can do it too. And they continuously surround themselves with negativity and the complete opposite of what society is looking for in a person. That they get stuck in it. And then they get stuck in the using the drugs along with these these crappy mindsets, and now I'll even institute uh, marijuana into it. Because, I mean, I smoke, I have my medical license, you know, I, it helps me through my day-to-day life. But some of those ages, um, I think it's counterproductive. I think it opens you up uh, more than what you would be sober, just like what mushrooms or LSD does to a lot of people. It opens you up and makes you susceptible to a lot of things. Which I, I can point to uh, Charles Manson. Charles Manson felt fed his leaders or, or his uh, followers LSD and ultimately manipulated them into doing what he wanted. And I feel that that's a big thing with a lot of these kids now, or just people in general, is they get stuck in this this loop of uh, drug use being valuable to different perceptions and surrounding themselves with crap crap situations like. Uh, like the music or the people they hang out, hang out with or their job life. I mean, there's been jobs I had to leave because people were just offering me cocaine. Like, hey, man, you want to go to the bathroom and do some cocaine real quick? It's like, yeah, I'm trying to get away from that. And uh, I, I don't think people take, a, take the time to sit and think about what they're doing before they do it and how it could ultimately destroy their lives in the long run. Thank you for sharing that. I think you really gave a lot of good uh, advice. I just want to ask, um, can you talk about some of the ways that you ask for help now, whether that's from your family, your friends, 
your classmates, the people around you, even professionals like people in the healthcare field, uh, stuff like that? Yeah, um, recently I've been thinking about uh, signing up for BetterHelp, which is a therapy therapy app. Um, I, I can't afford going to a regular psychiatrist or anything like that. Um, I, I haven't, I've asked my grandparents for a lot of help since I've been out recently. They helped me uh, get my teeth fixed because my teeth were just crumbling. And it's a uh, genetic thing from my mom's side. We have uh, vitamin deficiencies, which vitamin D deficiency especially uh, kills teeth. And my mom had it. I have it. And my sister also has it. Um, my top teeth were pretty much unusable. I couldn't hardly eat. I was in constant pain. Um, they ultimately gave me a uh, front of money or a loan of money to be paid back at another time to get all my top teeth taken out and get a top denture. So I'm almost 27 with dentures now, and a lot of people can't believe it. But uh, well, they helped me uh, when I wrecked my motorcycle. They, Since my credit score was super bad, they co-signed for me on a, on a car, which my wife now drives. Um just little things like once molly left i was like hey i'm i'm out like 300 bucks i'll pay you next paycheck but i needed to pay my electric bill or i pay my rent and they would help me i'd always pay them back and it uh it gives me guilt now because of how much i screwed them over when i was a kid you know i was stealing from them um i was cussing at them i i just didn't care i back then i was as close to a sociopath as my mother is now and it, it disturbs me quite a bit because of the things they have helped me with i mean they co-signed on my uh, condo that i'm living now with my wife because our credit scores were so bad but by doing so both our credit scores have gone up you know we're saving money we have things we need you know it's uh without them i, I don't think i would have made it and i guess i'll factor that in too is Anybody that has any kind of issue, either they're getting out of prison or they have drug addictions or, you know, they're threatened by a gang or whatever it is, go to the person that knows you best. Go to your parents, go to your mom, go to your dad and auntie, grandma, whatever it is, and tell them the situation. They raised you. They know who you are. They're going to help one way or another. Regardless how much I screwed my family over, they've always been there to help me in the long run. And uh, now that they're seeing that I'm actually pushing and trying to do better, unlike my mom, they give my mom everything constantly in and out of jail, give her cards, give her houses, you know, help her out. And she just threw it away every single time. And uh, I'm, I'm glad they're seeing that I'm actually taking what they've given me and helped me with and using it to manage and my family's advantage also. Yeah, I think. What you touched on, the importance of help really can't be understated. I think for anyone listening, don't be afraid to ask for help, whether that's in, in whatever aspect of life you need help in. And like a perfect example of someone, you know, who kind of turned their life around by asking for help is, is you. And I really think uh, it's a great example for other people. Yeah, it's true. And I also say a big thing is learning. Um, our education system isn't meant to make us intelligent. It's not make it. It's not made to make us knowledgeable. It's made to make us memorize. And 
to just fill in. It's kind of like to get an associate's degree here in the state of Florida, at least, I would have to take calculus and trigonometry to become an English teacher. In my mind, it's incredibly pointless to make me go through that when you could be teaching me something about uh, finances or, you know, the laws of the land, which a lot of people don't know. And that's why so many people are getting in trouble. Um, learn, learn everything, learn history, learn philosophy, learn, learn things that are going to better you. Because if I didn't dive into psychology once my grandparents told me about my mother, um, I wouldn't be able to pick and pick things out of my own life. I wouldn't be able to say like, hey, I'm feeling this. So if I do this instead, psychologically, it'll change the thinking patterns that I have. And I, I've done that a lot. My, uh, my granddaddy, he's a retired psychiatrist, so I call him from time to time. But a lot of his material is outdated because he would have graduated in the, in the 60s sometime. But that was the biggest thing for me is, is diving into psychology and looking at how I act and how I can change it and some of the things that I do that would be factored into one one thing or another, you know, sociopath or schizophrenic or this or that, you know, I, I was able to factor in and make myself feel better. Because there was a while there that I was struggling with thought of that. I also might be a sociopath because of my mother. But I learned. I dived in. Um, I've learned things that I was never taught. Like, I was raised in a Democrat household. So I was always told that the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. But diving into other materials and learning other viewpoints and seeing other viewpoints, that changed my total outlook on certain things. Because I took the initiative to actually learn something other than what I was being taught in the school system. Yeah, for sure. It's definitely important to keep an open mind, important to keep learning, especially with the experiences that you surround yourself with. So just to kind of just finish up here, I just want to ask as a final question. What are some of your future goals, immediate, long-term, and how will you continue to move forward with your life? So right now, um, I'm focused on school. I work a full-time job. Uh, I have the kids, of course. So my main thing is to focus as much on school as possible with the little bit of time I actually have to do it to also enjoy my life, too. Um, you know, because I like video games, you know, I, I still want to be able to spend time and play with my kids or take my wife out to dinner. Uh, right now, the biggest focus is school and my mental health. Um, my mental health kind of comes and goes. I'm, not, I'm still not really certain. I'm not professional, so I can't really put my finger on what it could actually be going on in my head. Uh, those are two really big priorities of mine, along with, you know, making sure my kids have the best life possible along with my wife being able to achieve her goals of being a nurse. Uh, ultimately, um, I just try to keep a positive mindset about it all. But I don't know if I'll be able to get through my college career or not. I don't know if I'll be in construction work forever, but if it does end up like that, I just uh, try to think positively. You know, there's a lot of people making good money in construction, even though it's hard work. And it's not sitting by a computer screen, but um, yeah, ultimately, I want to get out of my condo and get a standalone house because, you know, right now I'm in kind of like an apartment complex of condos and apartments. So to have my own yard and, you know, have my own garage and stuff like that is a nice goal. Save money. Um, everything that I was ultimately wanting before prison, but in a more 
civilized, less Soprano-esque way. You know, I don't want to, you know, go and steal from people anymore. I don't want to sell sell drugs to people anymore. I just want to kind of sit back and enjoy my life the best I can. And I, I think that's one of my biggest goals is just to be happy. Thank you for sharing. I think, yeah, that's, that is the end goal for a lot of people. And, you know, I'm definitely hopeful uh, for you. And I, and I hope that you will achieve your goals. Just speaking to you, like, this past couple hours, I really am confident that you'll be able to achieve everything you want. I'm looking here on your question list. Um, something that's been a, a problem for me, especially during lockdowns, was the uh, doom and gloom online. Uh, when it comes to politics, when it comes to the whole COVID situation, everybody has their own thoughts on things, their own opinions. But what I, I urge everybody, I even urge my grandparents, because my grandparents are slightly closed-minded, more so my granddad when it comes to the news and politics, because they put themselves in a vacuum of uh, the same stuff repeated over and over and over again. It's almost like a manipulation Always do research. If you hear something um, different gloom on online or on TV or you know just in your general life, always look into it. My grandparents told me when I was young to question everything I hear and only half of what I see. So that's why I've always done. And now my granddad especially kind of holds it against me that I question everything right down the politics because my trust in people has kind of fallen and that means the trust in politicians the trust in news the trust in pretty much anything that anybody can take and spin um i always do my research on i always come to my own conclusions never let anybody or anything any online website of them saying like oh this is the worst thing that ever happened ever always look into it because that doom and gloom that you feed yourself from online or from the news or from friends will feed back into you. And the only way to get rid of that is to get rid of the constant stream of negativity. And in my grandparents' uh, situation, it'd be like CNN, ABC type stuff. And actually look and see what they're talking about outside of their source because you might be getting all you might be getting upset about something that isn't something to get upset about it's just being spun to make people upset yeah for sure media media definitely has it is an echo chamber in some places i do agree with that yeah that was the conclusion of this episode of the other side of the truth if anyone has any questions comments concerns or if you're interested in being a guest on the show please feel free to send us an email at sahith at tost.us. That's heath at tost.us. Thank you so much to everyone who made it this far in this episode, and please stay tuned for the next one.